Hi, friends. Hello, should I delete that, listeners? We still have some tickets left for our live tour and we would absolutely love to see you there. On Thursday, the 23rd of May, we will be performing in the London Islington Assembly Hall. On Monday, the 27th of May, we will be in Salford. On Tuesday, the 28th of May, we'll be in Glasgow. Sunday, the 2nd of June, Birmingham. Monday, the 3rd of June, Bristol. And Tuesday, the 4th of June in Southampton. You can get your tickets at aegpresents.co.uk or via the link in the show notes or our Instagram bios. Really hope we see you there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And um, I went round to family friend's house to use their swim pools, like first hot day of the year. And I dived in and it was only about three feet deep and, and hit my head right on the top. And then when I tried to stand up, that's when I realised something was really wrong. Hello and welcome back to Should I Delete That? So sensitive. I know, I know. <laughs> Do you know why? I've become obsessed with this girl on TikTok who's a news anchor, right? Oh, well, I genuinely thought you were going to say Nigella Lawson. I was like, Al, welcome. <laughs> anyway, sorry, carry on. Um, this news anchor in the States and she films herself getting ready for the five o'clock news, 5 a.m. news. And she she gets ready. She starts to do her makeup at literally like 4.45 and she goes right down to the wire. She's literally five, live at five and she's putting lashes on at 4.57. And like it doesn't, it's, it's doing really bad things for my anxiety, but it's such compelling watching. Like every morning she films herself doing it. And I'm like, is she gonna make it? Is she gonna fucking make it? And she always makes it. It upsets me immensely that when it's like we come to like a thrill, like a thrilling situation for a man. Like I think of like a thrilling situation. And it's it's Indiana Jones in the hat. And then I think of our thrilling <laughs> situations. Like, Will she get her lashes on in time? <laughs> <laughs> true good point <laughs> all, that, all that came to my head there was like when people talk about danger wanks oh my god do you follow move with tara on instagram <laughs> yeah um she did a thing on her poll on her stories of the day where people were sending in the weirdest places that they'd had a wank and oh my fucking god i died like what like what the gatwick like express where? the gatwick express oh my god it's like that is so specific not just like any old train no no the, the Gatwick, Gatwick Express. Express. And where was she going? Was she excited for the holiday? Like so yeah. excited for the holiday that she just had to like bash one out? Or was she just like sad about coming home? So she was trying to cheer herself up. A sad wank. <laughs> sad, sad oh God, wank. my mum's in the house. <laughs> and this house is like there are no balls basically so she's gonna be like sorry what are you talking about in this talking podcast? to yourself about sad wanking because I've got <laughs> headphones in. How are you? I'm thriving. I'm good. I'm really good. I have some good news. I have my good. Well, it's probably my Ooh, bad, actually. Uh, oh. It's my good. Okay. But it's come with some bads, as I knew it would, which is what... It's good for you, okay? I, okay. I genuinely want a drum roll. Because as you may know, nine months ago, I lost my bank card. Yeah. Longer than nine months. It could be a year ago. I lost my bank card. It feels like since I've known you, but anyway. The system... 
it's flawed, but fine. So for the last year, I've had no bank card and I've just yeah. existed cha- chaotically via Apple Pay, a credit card, thankfully, which I found halfway through this experiment. And I like that I'm calling it an experiment to give it some sort of credibility. And um, through having to spend my friends' money and then pay them back because if my Apple Pay is not working, then you end up in trouble. And I only had like one mildly terrifying incident at that petrol station, like on the motorway where I couldn't pay for anything. Anyway, uh, it's been 10 months and I didn't want to get a new one because I knew what would happen if I got a new one. Every single thing, it happened this morning. This is the, right, okay, fine. We're good. It's, I got a new card, okay? I went into my online banking. That's thank clap. you. Thank you so much. I'm just like <laughs> roses landing on me. Oh, a pair of pants. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, so it was huge. Alex, my Alex genuinely couldn't believe it. Um, but I had to do it because I basically realized that I'm a grown-up I'm about to be a mother and also I went on my bank and like there was money missing and I was like hmm it's probably me that spent it but I just can't be sure um so I just feel like I need to take some control so um yeah I I got a new one but now the bad thing is I woke up to a bunch of emails today obviously it's the beginning of a new month like the tele my telegraph subscription which to be honest i probably could have done with cancelling anyway i think i only got it for like one once so me and you uh, could read an article together do you remember and then i was like well i've done this anyway that's yeah. expired like all my subscriptions i've had a thing this morning being like they've all expired i'm like oh no because they've all been connected to the same card for like three years and it's all uh, direct yeah. debits rolling 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 that's annoying now it's over that is really annoying it's so fucking annoying and i knew it would happen and this is why i've been putting it off also have you seen bank cards these days? Where are the numbers? Oh my God, where are the numbers? And it's also back to front. No, no, upside down. No. Oh, there are the numbers. The numbers are all on the back. And it's got a funny little but divot it, thing. But it, but it's also like, it's like portrait, not landscape. Yeah. And it's matte. Stupid. Yeah, and it's and matte. It's like there's no, there's no raised numbers or anything. It's just, it's oh. like, this is the future. And I've, I've just been missing it. Oh. I, didn't, I didn't know. I haven't seen money, like card money and so long question does anyone actually sign their credit cards i'm gonna do it right now i'm gonna do it right now never have i don't i only have a pink pen do you think it's okay well does it come out pink yes it's a pink pen oh i'm just gonna write it in pink i'm writing it in pink woo woo yeah so uh, there you go i'm back excellent back in the land of the spending wow have a new card it's an admin fucking nightmare but there's a sense of pride you've come this far i'm so proud of you i know you think i got it three days ago and i still haven't put it in a wallet it's just gone from like bag to bum bag to pocket to kitchen table so, so i feel like this one's not again. long yeah not long for this world right it's been good while it lasted also <laughs> let let's like m- next week my bad will be that i found the old one i guarantee it oh my god it a thousand percent will it a thousand it's it's Watch like this you... oh my god it's like when you enter right so you go onto a website and you type in your username and your password right you type in your password it's not right you type it in again it's not right and you type in like two variations it's not right so you're like fine i've got to reset the fucking password so reset the, f- the password you follow the link you type in the new password which is you know your normal password and then it comes back and it goes sorry you can't use one that you already used before and it's like okay so i i, w- I knew the password i was typing in the password 
unless you knew the password unless you've just done this whole thing before which is most likely so then you probably just add and like this happened last time so you had to add an exclamation point on it but then you forgot about probably. that so then you had to do like a capital or then you had probably. to put like a lucky number bane of my life honestly no I know it's so annoying. I'm so easy to hack also I get emails most days being like your password's been like compromised in a data leak do you want to change it I'm like no oh my god I know Chrome says to me all the time 76 passwords com- are compromised <laughs> and I'm like I can't today I'm so sorry and that's Unlucky. been for about a year and a half so yes, how, am I, how am I supposed to change 76 passwords that's a whole two days work <laughs> I know and literally Absolutely like not. I'll write a word and then password will be like 21 22 2020 2021 2022 <laughs> so I try and remember the last time I got locked out of an account and what year it was in yeah it's literally so bad and like how many question marks did I add you know my um my personal hotspot password is I love Alex which I set up for you but my Alex thinks it's for him so every time (laughs) he asks for the password I'm like I love Alex he's like oh I'm like yeah (laughs) sure that's sweet that's sweet oh yeah love you so much um okay if you got anything for me good bad or I do I do my good is that Whenever we ask a question on the podcast and we ask someone to to tell us the answer, even though we could Google ourselves, but let's let's skim over that. People actually respond and tell us the answers to stuff. And I know why we have this stupid system for centuries now. What's Not because I Googled system? it, which I... Do you remember 21st century? We were oh, like, yeah, 20, why? Because yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, actually yeah. the 20th century, right? A lovely historian called Charlotte responded Go to me Charlotte. and said... Hi, Alex. To answer your question, re-centuries, the year 1 to 100 is the first century. Therefore, 101 to to 200 is the second century, and so on. Uh... So the 1500s are in the 16th century. It's the same when we go to BCE, before Common Era, or BC, before Christ. Yes, you have me before before Common Era, but but that does make sense. Yeah, that does make sense. When you put the on the end, it's... This, it's the it's the bigger one so if it's like the 15th would be for yeah. the 1400s exactly yeah so I guess at the time it made sense now not so much I feel like I feel like we could reassess but that's why we say 21st century are you okay because that's not the best good like I mean it's a good good like Charlotte sounds great <laughs> and I'm happy but like it's been seven days and that's that's the good I just think it's cool that like we put this out there and people actually listen and think to help us with stuff okay yeah well okay that was depressing but then <laughs> um you got a new bank card I'm sorry <laughs> that's so true like, I'm so you're driving I've got a new bank card oh great <laughs> I know, and my backup good was that and exactly the same thing my backup good was that after on the podcast we'd said does anyone know where I can go and get my asshole waxed basically um this is actually should probably be my awkward and it would have been my awkward had I not done the most awkward thing ever a couple of days later but um I put on Instagram I was like thanks everyone for the recommendations after talking about hairy bum holes and then loads would DM me back being like did you just tell a quarter of a million people that you had a hairy arsehole I was like might have done yeah I think so I think I, <laughs> I think did, I did. <laughs> anyway I, I found someone love to give me a good, a good wax and I loved it so that was nice anyway yeah, you <laughs> cannot complain about your good I have two things that are interchangeable for bad and awkward I feel like I feel like a picture needs to help illustrate this because this is actually quite severe what happened right so we have a driveway small one but at a squeeze we can get two cars into it right and Knowing the kind of driver I am, I should just 
not pull, pull into it and not reverse into it however I always see it as a bit of a challenge like am I going to do it like let's just give it a go and see what happens right so I thought I'm going to reverse in so I went around to see my mom came back it was really dark um, I was like I'm going to reverse in see what happens so I did reverse in but I reversed in so close to the wall on this side right literally that I I could I could only just get out and the and the door was touching the wall but this wall is only like a foot tall like it's not tall at all right I know your metric systems are terrible so can you just give me on on you how high the wall goes oh like up to my knee fine thank you up to my knee perfect and because we kind of live on a hill so down below so the other side of the wall right is a big drop Uh into a nursing home into the into the into the property of a nursing home. You slip and you fall and you fall through the ceiling and just land on someone's (laughs) pensioner's lap. Pretty much. It's like, look over the wall, you've got a bird's eye view of like Winifred and Jeffrey. (laughs) Literally. Gumming on bagels. Bam, bro. Not even joking. So How steep is is the drop? I imagine it like a descent to hell. Like you just like, there should be like a rickety bridge over it, but that's long gone. So you could just fall into the fiery abyss. So uh, I'm not good at this, but it's probably like up to my boobs, the drop. Is it to the roof of the house? No, so the into the, like the 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 the, gar- the grounds, the grounds of the nursing home, right? Interesting. Why do I feel like you live in the the like the house from up? That's just like okay, you're focusing above on everybody else. You're focusing. It's like, you're slightly like floating <laughs> above this old people, so I'm like looming over them. Okay. <laughs> anyway, look, sorry. we live on a hill, so the people on the other side of me are higher up than me. I'm right? gonna have to come and visit. Okay, I know okay. this sounds confusing, but bear with me. So we've got it right. So wall. Wall's a little bit further up, then over the wall is a drop into the nursing home grounds. I got out of the car and I was so preoccupied with making sure that the car didn't get scratched that I didn't pay any attention to myself. And I I actually don't really know what happened, but I fell over the wall. I like... Into the abyss. kind of buckled into the wall. And then I stumbled, 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 stumbled and went over the wall and dropped down into the nursing home grounds. Oh, my God. And were the old people okay? <laughs> Did you crush any on the way in? <laughs> Luckily, it was just the grounds, but I was bruised on all in all areas. so e- embarrassing. Dignity, ego. How thing. high was the drop on, up to your boobs? It's a big up drop. My boobs. It was a big drop. Yeah. It was, I can't, I rolled, I rolled rather Barrel than rolled. like nice. fell. Pop-off. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I, I was kind of like, invent a new stuff. tape measure just like Alex's knees, Alex's boobs, like just measuring your <laughs> things that you know the height of. <laughs> Betty. <laughs> <laughs> coffee table. Oh my god, that's so fun. Yeah, that's know, bad and um, awkward. Have you got a ring I, camera? Please tell me you've got a ring so camera. So I I no, yeah, we do, but it's out of reach. I was so pissed off. And and also yeah, David's like, it's not also not set up to record, apparently, which is annoying. Um, but I ran in and I was like, Dave. And honestly, I've really, I, I actually have really hurt myself. I'm bruised and scratched and I there was blood. There's there's actually blood <sighs> on my legs and everything. Like I really fell. And I walked in like completely shell shocked, obviously. My hair was everywhere. And I was like, Dave, I just fell over the wall. And he was like, you kind of just peered out. And he was like, 
just scratch the car and like run out to the car to check the scratches. I hadn't because because I paid such careful attention to the back to the yeah, car. The human and sacrifice ensured that the car was. I fine. know. And he walked back in. I was like, I'm not speaking to you because I came in in distress, and your primary yeah, concern bloodied and bruised like car. Yeah. Was the car yeah. door? Who cares? You fell the height of your own tits into an old people's home, and all he cares about is his fucking car. Typical. <laughs> Literally, the height of my tits, literally, that's high, okay? It's a big drop. It's a big They're not drop. as high as they used to be, but they are still pretty high. <laughs> yeah, I'm talking high in a bra, okay? Okay. High in a bra. Um, I that makes me I feel don't... a bit better about what I did. Go on. This is actually so embarrassing. I'm so embarrassed, and I deliberately didn't tell the whole story on Instagram because I thought I'd save it for you because I thought you could do a being cheered up this week. Yes. So... I, w- I went to a quiz on Monday night. It was Halloween on Monday, so we went to a quiz. I went with my best mate, Ellie, and her mum, and her boyfriend, and Alex. So there were five of us at the quiz, and Boo, great team, winning, like, stunning. And there was, it was it was a big, big, big thing. But we were basically, we sat, because we were quite a big group, we were sat at a table around the corner. So everyone else was right. kind of in the main room, but we were around the corner. But it didn't really matter, because you could hear the guy, because it was a big speaker. So... Anyway, for context, we were doing the quiz, everything was going well. And then at the like in the interlude in the middle bit, he was like, Okay, everyone has to submit a joke and I'm gonna read the <laughs> joke out. I was like, Oh my god, I wanna die. And you had to oh name the joke. The, the question was, what makes you scream? And everyone had to answer it on the piece okay. of paper, and then he would read out your answers. Okay. I was not in the mood. I'd just eaten a burger, which a vegan burger, obviously, which had turned out to be very spicy. So I was grappling with my heartburn. And Oof. I was just, I was in a, I was in a place and I just thought, I'm going to be a smart ass. I'm going to be a funny guy. So my answer was yeah. ice. Because if you say it, I scream, right? It's fucking terrible. Oh, no. But, <laughs> like, you know, it's original. So I, I put my answer in and I thought, well, that was fucking shit. That won't do. And then to my horror, I started reading everybody's jokes out. I was like, oh God, with our names. Okay. And oh. yeah, it's not good. And he read out everyone's, and everyone was like, when I scream, it's like emotionally available men. And everyone's like, ha ha ha. Or it's like Liz Truss, ha 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 ha. Or like a Tory <laughs> government, ha 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 ha. You know what I mean? Like it was just like unshaved balls, ha 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 ha. All of this, great. And then he got to mine and he was like, M. And then he was like, Ice. Fucking crickets. And I was like, thank God I'm sitting around the corner and no one can identify me. And then <laughs> he carried on reading them. And then he was like, and the winner is, and he went, no one else found it funny, but I loved it. Em! I was like, oh my God. So like, I'm not going. I'm not going. Because no one applauded it. Because as he'd acknowledged, no one fucking found it funny. But I was up, I had won. So I was like, Alex, you have to go. So you're M. I, I, I can't face these people. They don't want me. So I sent him up to be me. I was like, I'm pregnant. He was like, okay. So he went up to go and get it. Got it. And I was like, M. And he was like, yes. And it was all very awkward. And he came and sat back down, literally sat down. Oh, you also want a free drink? And I was like, I don't want to go up there and ask for a Diet Coke because it's like two pounds. You win a free drink. You can go up there and get a pint. Yeah. That's four pounds. Yeah. Makes more sense. If yeah. I go and order a pint, yeah. I want to be like, that's inappropriate. She's clearly knocked up. So I had a bit of logic. Anyway, so he got got his pipe, came back, sat back down, and then your man went, and in second place, Alex. Oh, no. <laughs> he had to go. <laughs> I was like, M. He was like, Alex. It's so embarrassing. 
joke was also really shit, but also kind of jokes. His? his was my mouth. It was like, what makes you scream? It's like, that's quite good. I like that. I yeah. like that. I mean, a couple of wise Practical, guys. Logical. I like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, then he had to go back. So, that was already embarrassing enough. So, then he got my dad and literally looked at me. He's like, I hate you. It's like, fair enough. And then we carried on with the quiz. Alex, who won the fucking quiz? You did. Who won the pumpkin competition, Al? We did. <laughs> I think everyone else must have thought it was rigged because our jokes were clearly so shit. <laughs> it was just like, I wish I had footage of that of Alex. <laughs> um, yeah, Alex. Yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was literally like I can't Alex. tell you. This is why someone sent me a message the other day saying you should you should do like comedy. And I was like, that is the biggest compliment ever, but also something that fills me with so much dread. It makes me want to die because the idea of standing there when nobody laughs and I got a taste of it on Monday night, Alex. No. It's awful. It's like, you know, a v- Venus flytrap when it just goes like that and then it's just gone. That was yeah. my in- existence. <laughs> like I just felt like this big thing go over me and I was like, that's me deceased. Now I, I no longer exist. I can't ever get out of this. <laughs> Pray for Alex. Yeah, and I, I, I would I'm the victim that was here. Guaranteed not to win. Me, me too. I thought it was a sure, surefire loss. Yeah, and it was not. It was not. So I actually think this is probably my bad. And um, so I had my little sister's surprise engagement party on Saturday. Right. So basically, for me, and I think a lot of other people who just aren't speaking up, the need for an app that describes the weather. The temperature is growing, okay? Because I checked the weather on the morning of the Saturday and it said 20 degrees and I said, oh, chilly. So I put on, you know, we've both got it, the knit from, from Under the Stories, the striping yeah, knit. Yeah. It is the yeah. heaviest it's knit so I heavy. Own. I wore that the other day and so I regret heavy. it. It's so hot. I wore that. I wore a jacket over it. I wore leather, tight leather trousers and knee-high chunky boots, leather chunky boots. I have never been so uncomfortable to the point that I thought I, I, I actually, I need to go somewhere and just buy it. I'm just going to nip to Oxford Street and have to buy an outfit. I'm going to have to do something because I'm going to have a panic attack. I'm that hot. So I think... I need to sort an app that says to you, it's 20 degrees. And that what this what this means for you is don't wear something light, don't wear a jacket. This means it's quite hot. It is quite hot. The Caribbean, I'm going to just give you some helpful things that I remember things by. The Caribbean is like 28 degrees. Okay. So it's only eight degrees above that. So you would never wear leather trousers no. in the Caribbean. Never. Absolutely not. No. Never. So no. that's something to remember. Then you remember, in, is it legally blonde? And it's like, what's your favorite day? And she's like, April 23rd. Not too hot, not too cold, just for a nice light jacket. I would say that's about yeah. 20 degrees. Nice light jacket, denim jacket, potentially. Might be might be able to get away without one. 18 degrees, probably a nice a, light jacket weather. And a summer dress, but not like a knit and yeah. I had a, I and had then a, anything is... below 10, I'd wear a coat for. Anything between 10 and 16, anything, yeah, anything between 10 and 16, gilet or a light okay. jacket. Okay. I'll make this app, except I'll just be this app. Just text me and I'll tell you what to wear. You're making my idea a little bit redundant, but okay. Sorry, and if I'm, good idea. Make <laughs> Thank app. you. I'll Thank buy you. it. Um, it was awful. I had a little frustrated cry in the toilets as well, like just a pure... <laughs> 
frustration cry because I couldn't the pants wouldn't roll down properly like I, I was so hot that my body had just swollen like it is were your knickers all wet again it, it's my knickers were soaked through <laughs> my body was so swollen I couldn't get the pants off properly and you know when you're like I, I like I, I was dripping I was literally dripping and I had a little frustrated cry that I was like get yourself this together you're becoming be- obscene I know I know it was awful oh my god that's so sad you and your you, so you and soppy knickers crying in the loo like soppy soppy knickers <laughs> that's gonna be your nickname soon soppy knickers two weeks on the bounce you yeah. found uh you wet through uh, okay Ooh. right well let us introduce you to our podcast guest this week this is ed jackson who came and shared his incredible story with us from an injury that completely changed his life to where he is today we just loved him and this whole conversation and I'm so excited for you to hear it I really hope you enjoy this interview it was absolutely fascinating and if you do like the podcast if you happen to like the podcast we would absolutely love if you could rate us five stars please um on apple podcasts and if you do want to leave a nice review that would be absolutely delightful if you don't want to do either that's totally fine forget i said anything hashtag no worries kiss kiss (laughs) without further ado here's ed thanks so much for being here i'm gonna jump straight in if that's okay and i'd love to talk to you about i guess what changed your life you had an accident in 2017 which did change everything. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Yeah, well, good, Hello, to, be, good to be here. Hi. <laughs> um, pleasure to meet you both. Um, yeah, so jump straight in is quite an apt term because that's kind of oh, what shit, happened. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, it, I did not pick my words yeah. <laughs> For God's sake, um, one job. No, I wish I had, if I jumped in, it would have been fine. Yeah, it was the diving right, yeah. bit that was the problem. Okay, just to give it a bit of context, um, I was professional rugby player for 10 years pretty lucky to be able to do that and I was 27 recovering from a shoulder injury I was playing down in Wales at that point and um, I went round to a family friend's house to use their swimming pools like first hot day of the year and they had a feature pool with a waterfall in one end and I just after lunch just went down and dived in where the waterfall hit the water I couldn't see the bottom but I just assumed it was deep because there's this big rock face and to be honest thinking back and you know, what, what made me think it was deep? I'm not sure exactly, but like um, it happened and I dived in and it was only about three feet deep and I was pretty heavy back then. I was about 18 stone and hit my head right on the top. Um, and I just remember thinking like, I re- out of that, that was a hard, I hit my head really hard there and I was used to hitting my head. I was kind of played rugby for 10 years, but I was like, that was pretty special. <laughs> but I hadn't lost consciousness. So I was like, I'll just try and stand up, check my head so I don't bleed in their pool. And then when I tried to stand up, that's when I realised something was really wrong. Because um, first of all, I was just confused, but I couldn't move. So I could flap around a little bit with my right arm, but that was it. But I was still underwater. So like quite quickly, that confusion was like, turned to panic and I was like, shit, I'm going to drown. Luckily, my dad was in the pool and one of my friends and they came over and pulled me to the surface. But I'd lost all movement and sensation from the shoulders down. And what happened, I'd hit my head so hard on the top that the disc in between my C6 and C7 vertebrae, which in layman's terms is like the bottom two of your neck. So they're the ones that make you, you, if you put your chin to your chest or look straight up in the sky, they're the ones that do that. The disc had exploded and my neck had dislocated. 
and I'd cut my spinal cord. One of the bits of disc had lodged into the left-hand side of my spinal cord. So what was 12 millimetres thick was now six millimetres thick. So that was what was rendering me completely paralysed. Uh, I was in the pool for about 40 minutes. Ambulance came. Luckily, there was quite a few people there to help the paramedics to get me out of the pool. But also, luckily, my dad, being a retired doctor, didn't try and drag me out of the pool, as your friends might might have, because mm-hmm. my neck was in a very vulnerable position. And most yeah. of the damage that happens to people with spinal cord injuries happens after the accident, like how they're handled. So they held me still in the pool. But despite doing that, the, the ambulance journey to hospital, I was like following it in my mind because I knew the area pretty well. Um, and I just remember feeling tired and being like, I was just, and then I remember them trying to keep me awake. But the next thing I know, I'm in hospital. And I didn't find out till a year later that sort of 15 minute journey or what I thought was 15 minutes ju- minute journey actually took two and a half hours because they had to pull over three times to resuscitate me. So um, I actually died a few times as well, oh. which is weird. There was no pearly gates or anything. It was just felt no. quite relaxing. I was just sort of drifting off to sleep, but it included shots of adrenaline. So it was quite serious resuscitation. So. Yeah puts quite a different spin on how lucky I am to like even oh be here God. never mind sort of doing what I'm doing now is that because it cuts it cut the blood supply to your head it's not the blood supply so you know ner- so your nervous system controls everything in your body yeah so like temperature regulation heart rate blood pressure it's blood right. pressure would be the, the same so your brain can't tell okay. your heart to keep beating properly right. so like everything gets messed up effectively I was lucky that you, you hear the difference between complete and incomplete injuries. Yeah. So I've technically got an incomplete injury because I've seen some recovery below the level of my injury. Complete, people think that, that means you've severed, you've cut your spinal cord in half, yeah. but it doesn't because if you do that, you're pretty much definitely going to die. It means that uh, you don't see any recovery below the level of your injury. So I'd done enough damage, enough trauma to my brain to not be able to get the signals basically to keep going or like to, yeah, everything was getting messed up. But luckily um some very good paramedics obviously saved my life and then by the time you're in hospital then you're kind of all right like my dad said that he he was the only one that was knew there was a possibility I could die because he's a doctor and he was being very good at not letting that on however like it was I when I was lying in the pool looking at him it was the first time I've ever seen him like rattled so I knew it was pretty serious but he said as soon as I got into hospital and actually as soon as I went into the operating theater I might have come out complete quadriplegic couldn't move anything for the rest of my life but he knew then I wouldn't die because you're rigged up to all the machines and they can resuscitate you but it was the time between hitting the bottom of the pool and getting to intensive or getting to hospital that was the dangerous time your poor dad oh my god like that's and, and poor you obviously as well yeah, but like yeah. as a doctor and you've got like I think that when you have to like work on someone that you love and it, or be with someone that you love and you know oh like bless yeah. him was he with you in the ambulance when you were going to hospital no no, no, they were waiting for me at the hospital, which is even worse. So, and by that point, Lois, my then fiance, now wife, was in Cardiff still, luckily. So she didn't see any of it. And they'd rung her and said, look, come over. They didn't want her to be driving panicked. So like, look, Ed's gone to hospital. He's not dead. No, he's fine. Whatever, come over. But then she got to hospital first and she was like, where is he? And they're like, we're, they're like, we're not sure. They just knew the ambulance wasn't there, but they couldn't, they didn't know why. And then dad's thinking he's getting resuscitated or he's died in the back of the ambulance. So they're waiting for two hours, two and a half hours when it was supposed to be 15 minutes. But luckily he knew all of this kind of the processes involved. So he, when he was deliberately sort of fibbing to the rest of the family just to keep everyone calm, 
still like, where is he? And he's like, oh, no, it's okay. They're probably doing checks. And throughout the whole process then in hospital and the recovery, it was really useful having a doctor on side, not just to yeah, like, yeah. not just to sort of um, translate the medical talk coming from the doctors about me, but also to filter that and send it to the family in a nice non-distressing way rather yeah. than getting the hard-hitting truths from the from the doctors. Yeah. So when you arrived in the hospital, you did they take you straight in to surgery? And was that with the view of saving your life or was it like doing what they could or did they think like we can restore movement or do you know what I mean was there like a sort of plan that they were relaying to your family or to you before you went in or was it just we're just going to do our best and see what we can yeah. help with yeah effectively that I think with neurological injuries the result of the operation only exposes itself over the period of time how much you can rec- how much you recover it's not like you've broken a bone and they'll reset it and they know that it will take a few months to fuse the sort of roadmap that's not. And they scan my neck and then rush me straight into the operating theatre. Luckily, I was at Southmead Hospital in Bristol, which is like one of the leading neurological centres in the country and one of the newest hospitals. But not only that, one of their top neurologists who wouldn't normally be on call on a Saturday night just got back from two-week holiday in the Maldives. So... I was really fortunate to have him and, and Mr. Neil Brewer. And the last thing I remember before, to sort of answer your question, before I went into intensive care, sorry, into the operation, when you're going under general anaesthetic, which I had done a few times before, because rugby's a stupid sport and this wasn't my first operation, but they, they read you your last rites. They're like, you know, you need to know there's a chance you won't wake up from this because one in a million people are allergic to mm. anaesthetic. But it was the first time that I'd like, I realised, I looked him in the eye and I genuinely believed what he was saying. He was like, look, Ed, you may wake up and we may have fixed you. You may wake up and nothing's changed. You may wake up and it might be worse or there's a chance you won't wake up from this. And I think I was still in shock at that point a little bit because apparently I said to him, he was like, you told me the weirdest thing that I've ever been told in that moment before someone goes in. Apparently I said, don't worry, just give it your best shot. <laughs> Such a vibe. Yeah. <laughs> So he it's all good, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just have a go. Um, but effectively, I woke up a day later um, after a seven-hour operation and just was in intensive care. And then it was just working out what had actually happened. Um, I'd forgot what had happened to start with. I was going to say, were yeah. you even like aware? And I was just like, why am I in hospital again? Yeah. I must have had a rugby injury. But then it slowly dawns on you yeah. what's happened and... Yeah. And when you woke up from that operation, did you have any fe- any movement, any feeling? No, so um, I started by trying to move my feet, hands, and I had nothing apart from I could shrug my right shoulder. So, um, yeah, it was pretty scary. It was it was hard to get a head around at first. It's one of those things that, you know, you, you're like, this happens to other people, not me. Like, yeah. you hear about this happening. This is never yeah. actually going to happen to you. Yeah. And there I was, like, completely paralysed and the shoulders down. And that stayed that way for for over a week uh, yeah. yeah that's really and I was scary. I was told that that was it basically after a week after they, they do something called the Asia, Asia test it's American spinal injury assessments every 24 hours then they give you a prognosis after a week so initially I was just hoping to get the use of my arms back so I could use a wheelchair okay never really contemplated anything more than that that was the only thing I was hoping for um, if someone had offered me that then I would have taken it luckily no one did because I managed to get a little bit further than that Oh my god! I mean, that is like I just can't imagine this. This happens to you literally like that. 
like in a split second and then you have to get your head around all of that I just don't I I think I just have to be sedated <laughs> do you know what? it's weird like you it's, it's just, not you can't get your head around it like no, when it's happening no. it's a massive process to get like that you go through um and there's been lots of it's not been a straight line you know it's been lots of learnings along the way and ups and downs and I think you've just got to do whatever you can and eventually I realized after like a week of feeling sorry for myself yeah. and of just feeling like you know I thought thoughts at night that I never want to think again you know I work with a lot of people through our charity who have clinical depression and have had suicide attempts and PTSD and things like that and now I understand what that feels like yeah I don't luckily I don't suffer from it but I have a much le bigger level of empathy for people that do because there were nights where I was like I'm just gonna be a burden on everyone like if I could finish it I would but luckily I couldn't move, so I couldn't know anything about that yeah. anyway. But it was um, it was dark. But then I got to a point where the surgeon came in and said, look, Ed, this is your, you know, we're fighting, you've got to be fighting for your independence here. Not, you're not gonna walk again. You've got to try and be independent again. And then that word independence made me realize that it wasn't just about me. It was about my mum, my fiance, like my family, anyone who's gonna to have to look after me. And even though, there's a good chance I'll, I, I will, I won't be independent. I know that I've got to do everything I can to try and be independent because in six months, a year's time, if I look myself in the mirror and all I've done is lie there in bed feeling sorry for myself and now everyone's having to look after me, I'll never be able to live with myself. But at least if I've tried as hard as I can, I'll be able to look myself in the mirror. Yeah. So that's when it was after day seven, I started spending every waking moment trying to move something, like trying to wiggle something. And just 40 hours later, my toe flicked. And it was just like, I mean, that was, it was incredible because I was trying, I, there was a chance because the level of my injury, I'd get used to my arms and hands back. But I'd been categorically told below the level of injury, there wouldn't be recovery. So then all of a sudden there was a sign that there was something still connected and something to work with. That and must have just, been the best feeling literally in the, in the entire world. Did anybody see it or were you by yourself? No, I was by myself. And um, so I'd, I'd spending all the time just staring at my toes, imagining moving them. Because obviously, you, even when you close your eyes, it feels like you're moving them because your body mm. doesn't change that quickly and get used to it. And then I was moving, moving, opened my eyes and it moved. And I was like, oh, God, I must have been a spasm. Then I did it again and again. And I couldn't feel it, but I could see it. When my brain was sending the message, it was moving. And then I was just like, Mom, get in here. Like, I need an independent oh. toe adjudicator. And she's like <laughs> scrambling in the room from outside in the corridor. And sure enough, it was wiggling. And then I just wouldn't stop wiggling because I was like, I didn't want it to go away. But then over the weeks and, and months, more and more started coming back. We just started pushing really hard. And we re I realized it was more about, it was just as much about a psychological recovery, like staying in a positive mindset as it was the physical recovery because one fed the other. And when I was in a good headspace, my body would literally recover and I'd see progress. And that was the first time I sort of really, it was really obvious to me about that mind-body link and um, something that's still, you know, not probably explored to the extent it should be. It was definitely not so far in hospital and in these long-term recoveries. And it was tough. It was, you know, it was really, it was, it was really hard for everyone, obviously, sort of six months, year of trying to understand, like, we're trying to work out who I am, like, because I'd just been a rugby player up until that point, you know, and. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment. 
you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. All of a sudden, I'm needing help getting down the stairs or I couldn't even get over a curb and everyone's having to do stuff more for me. And I had a big sort of bit of an identity crisis. You know, I was focusing so hard on my recovery and my rehab. That was a distraction. But really, there was this bigger thing going on where it was like, what the, re- what the hell does the rest of my life look like? Like, can I be of any use to anyone? Um, and all of the things I'm doing now, I never imagined I'd be doing. And like finding that process of, of getting the s- slate swiped clean of every, every, everything you thought you were before and having to go, right, actually, I'm not a rugby player. I wasn't born a rugby player. That's just what I did. Like, yeah. so now who am I? Like, what really gives me purpose? What really makes me happy? And having to start from square one again has been like, the most amazing experience ever. And don't get me wrong, it's not easy living with a spinal cord injury. I have a lot of issues I have to deal with daily, spasms, bladder and bowel issues, sexual function issues, temperature regulation issues, lack of sleep, not being able to move properly, probably never run again, won't be able to kick a football around my kids. But there's so much I can do. Yeah. And it was realising that, going from that tipping point of, instead of a place of loss, of being really broken about what I couldn't do anymore, realising how lucky I was to be able to what are the things I could do? Because I now knew people who couldn't do any of the things I could do. And we never look that way in life. We're always looking up and getting annoyed about what other people have got and what we haven't. And same as me before when I was playing. I was living the dream like for a boy, my dream, playing professional sport. But I was still spent half the time stressed out about someone else playing my position or getting another contract or, you know, and all of those sorts of things. I never really sort of sat back and appreciated how lucky I was to be doing it in the first place. And that's been the biggest shift for me mentally has been, you know, actually just feeling lucky about the things that I used to take for granted. There was a big, there was a long time where I had to come to terms with the fact that I would never be able to walk up a set of stairs again or drive a car again, potentially, or even feed myself, brush my own teeth. I had to come to terms with that. So now daily, I'm appreciative of being able to do those little things. So my base level of happiness is so much higher than it used to be because before it'd take a lot more than that to make me happy. Not that I was a miserable person, but like for most people, like your, your, your spikes of happiness are when something out of your sort of normal daily routine mm-hmm. goes well, whether you get a new job or have a baby or, you know, these sorts of things. Yeah. But for me now, it's like this basic, basic level, level of appreciation on a daily basis of the things that I can do and I couldn't do for a while. And sometimes it's not until you lose stuff that you really start totally. to appreciate it. And it's relative, isn't it? Everyone's level of gratitude and appreciation is relative and you have a reference point for you know a, a time like the lowest your lowest of like I don't know what's going to happen here I don't know if I'm ever going to be going to be independent so that totally makes sense but yeah. I imagine because and rugby is this like 
I think anyway, I don't really have any any experience, but like rugby is a very, like it's a very community thing, isn't it? And if you're, especially if you're playing professional rugby, I imagine it becomes like it occupies your entire life. And, and, and as you were getting better, like obviously it was amazing that you were getting better, is that the right word? Yeah, getting yeah. Better, yeah, improving and seeing some physical improvement and being able to walk again and stuff. But then I guess you have to cope with, yeah, that, that rugby is just like gone now. That that whole, uh, something that you probably made your entire life is just gone. And yeah. having to like rebuild a new identity, I can't I imagine that would have been really difficult. It was, but in a weird way, it was coming anyway. So I was 27 and like length yeah. of rugby career is, you're lucky to make it to 30. I think the average length of a premiership career is only like three years because you see the Really? The, the starting team, but actually underneath that, there's a squad of 50 and a lot of them are losing their jobs or injuries or selection, whatever it might be. So I felt lucky to have made it at 27. I'd also had seven operations. Like the position I played was pretty physical. So my body was wrecked anyway. So I think if this had happened at 21 or 22, it would have been a lot harder to deal with emotionally for me because everything was ahead of me. But I feel lucky to have done it for 10 years in the first place. In that time, it was still a period of loss and it was still like, what the hell am I going to do now? bit of an identity crisis but looking back I don't now regret not being able to play rugby anymore because I just see it as something I was really grateful to do and on top of that being part of the rugby community really helped me like through my accident it's such a supportive like they call it the rugby family you know like football's very tribal so your club will support you but other clubs will love it if one of the other club's players get injured like that's just how it is it's quite but with rugby I was getting messages from all over the world from all clubs played against, played with, all these players I'd never even met. And that felt amazing. It felt like it wasn't just me getting better. It was like I was doing it. Yeah. You had this sort of wave of support behind you, even though it was just you in a room with your physios. It felt like there was this big level of support. Then on top of that, like my access to the phys- high level physios and doctors and all of those sorts of things since I've left because of knowing them through rugby and also just recovering from a spinal cord injury is spending hours and hours and hours in a physio room that's not something that's completely alien to me. Like if it was spending yeah. hours and hours and hours in front of a spreadsheet, I'd probably yeah. be still in a hospital bed. <laughs> Whereas other people would find that easy. Yeah. You know? So th- there's definitely been a lot of benefits. Not playing again, I sometimes, I'm lucky to still be involved on the media side. So I go and report and do some presenting around the rugby, around the Champions Cup. I'm going to Ireland for the internationals Ooh, in November. That's fun. Yeah, so that's really fun. And that allows me to still see my mates and get yeah. stay involved to a certain degree. I feel very fortunate to be able to do that. But I don't, and sometimes I'm there and I'm like, I miss that buzz of the stadium and running running out through a tunnel. Like, it's hard to replace when you're stood in a tunnel. Like, I remember the first game I played for Wasps against Harlequins was in the London doubleheader and there were 60,000 people at Twickenham and you're in the tunnel and you're opposite, you're standing next to the team you're about to face and you can hear the crowd, like the noise of the crowd outside. You can like feel it coming down the tunnel. And you're just about to go into battle with the guy stood next to you. That sounds like and the best w- When you run out, it's like the it's it's both terrifying and exciting at the same time, yeah, but yeah, also yeah. an emotion that's really hard to replace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So of course, like you miss those moments, but also in between that, you know, there's all the training in January. You know, on Monday and Tuesday mornings at seven o'clock in the morning, where you're like, I do not want to be here. Like all of those things that you don't miss: yeah. injuries, contract negotiations having to move house all the time when you sign for different clubs. It's not It's not all like a dream um, as it's made up to be. It can be tough too. Can I ask what, how your, um, like your mental health and kind of like personality 
was when you were in hospital and like at the early stages of your recovery? Because I know the medication can have a big impact on mood and irritability, obviously frustration. And you talk about not wanting to be a burden on your family and stuff. So I was just wondering, was that something that you were very aware of, like your your mood and how, and your, not just your attitude, but it's really hot. I guess you don't have anywhere for context, my brother had a similar accident a few years ago where he broke his neck and his back. And I just, I remember the the mood being, his mood being really hard for him to have to control because you don't get to hide. You don't get to be by yourself and just sit yeah. and be angry. So I wonder, was was anger ever a part of it? Did you go through any process where it was just like, I have to get through this and I'm going to be a bit of a horror, but I'm going to, you know, it's going to end up end, end inspiringly. Or was it something that you wanted to remain cheerful and positive as you were going through it? Yeah. So it's like I said before, it's not a linear progression. Like there was times where you're angry. There's times where you're happy. A lot of the time it was during the day. I felt very guilty for what I was putting my family through emotionally. But it's very common to take it out on the people that are closest to you and be angry and irritable like that's the same in any day life like people are stressed you often take out the ones you're loved whether they're there just because it's they're there or for some weird reason that's the case and you see it very commonly with traumatic injuries it happens you get a lot there's a high divorce rate and it's not just because the person's now in a different situation physically it's because that put the person who's had the injury will often push away the put their loved ones which is um for me it was more I felt guilty. So during the day, I would hide how upset and angry I was and just put on this brave face for my family. But then at night, I was really in a really dark place. So it was it was black and white. And mm. w- when people were with me, I was okay because I was pretending to be okay. And sometimes that manifests into you actually being okay. Mm. Um, but at night when I was by myself, because in hospitals, they've got to leave at a certain time. Actually, there was a couple of wards I was on where they were great. The nurses would like let Lois sleep and like, pull a mattress in for her mm. and sort of break the rule, bend, break and bend the rules. Um, but it's not been linear. Like things have been frustrating. There's been good times and bad times. A lot of it has often been tied into what progress I'm making at the time. And recovering from a neurological injury is really slow. It's a really long process. And, and one of the things I realized is to stay positive, I, I almost had to see progress. But you would go weeks and months sometimes and feel like you hadn't made any progress. And you're like, right, is this it? Because you don't know when it's going to stop. Mm. So it could stop at any point. Um, and you just push and push and see how far you can take it. So I would make sure I was filming every movement. Like Lois became my physio, basically, but she would film everything I was doing. And even though it hadn't felt like you'd move forward for three weeks, you then look at a photo or a video of you trying to move your finger three weeks ago and you have made progress and that would help keep you in a positive mindset. And actually that's spilled over into everyday life now. Like you have these big dreams and aspirations in life, but a lot of the time you sort of hang your hat on it and you're not happy until you get there. But that's dangerous because you get there and then it just, you're happy for a second, then it just moves on like the hedonic treadmill. Mm. You got to enjoy the process. I know it's a cliche, but that was the case for me. So I moved my goals from, walking again but then waking up miserable every morning when I wasn't walking again to let's try and move the third finger on my left hand a little bit more today Mm. and just work on that and then I'd do it and it'd feel like I've achieved something and then you add all of those little wins up and and it gets you to um it gets you to the big changes but the mental side of things like staying in a positive headspace a lot of the things I developed were using distractions so music one of the big ones for me was keeping a diary so I kept voice notes 
um, initially when I couldn't move. And then the, an iPad was hung over my bed, so I'd tap it with my hand. It was, it was good rehab as well. But that was to offload at night thoughts that were in my head to help me sleep. And then actually that was what has ended up ended up with me writing a book. So that was supposed to be completely private. That was actually my next question. I was like, I really hope you've published that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, that, I was... Um, no one was supposed to see that, not even Lois or anything. It was private. And then I woke up one afternoon because I'd fall asleep sometimes in the afternoon because neurological tiredness is a weird thing. Like once you act, you might not even be moving at all, but just trying to move things after an hour, you just pass out of sleep. And one of my mates was at the end of my bed reading through my notes of my diary, obviously, as your mates do. And he was like, I was like, oh, that's private. He was Consent. like, he was like two things. One, you're a fucking weirdo. <laughs> Two, you, you should like publish some of this to, or post some of these things to, to make it, to help other people who might be in hospital for a long time. A lot of it was just the practicalities of spending months in hospital, the day-to-day process of it. I was really reluctant. Like back then I was a pretty insular typical bloke like don't show any weakness in fact it's bad with rugby it's even worse because you kind of you're brought up to not if you're injured don't show the opposition you're showing any pain and so it's why rugby players and men in general find it more difficult to be vulnerable because of that stigma attached to it so that's the headspace I was in at the time so I was like no way and also I'd had like I had an Instagram account but I think I had two posts that were both of my dog at that point and I had like four followers but all, all being family members so I was like this completely alien to me but then they persuaded me to do it that I like, it might help someone. So we did post them and I didn't look at the posts. I didn't look, want to see the responses. I'd just post like, and then ignore it. And then Lois, my wife, came to me after a week and was like, you should see what's happening. People are responding. And there were 15,000 people following this blog in one week of posting things. And I was like, panic mode, like what is going on? But then she started showing me some of the responses from people. And some of them were people who had been through similar situations were offering advice. So they were reaching out to me, some of them being former Paralympians, all of these sorts of people. So they became an amazing crutch for me and also an avenue where I could be completely honest with someone because I was still trying to protect my family from my honest emotions. I didn't want to say I wanted to kill myself last night. You know, that's not going to be productive yeah. for them. But I wanted to tell someone and all of a sudden I had these people going, yeah, that's completely normal. I wanted to do that every night when I was in hospital. And you're like, okay, that's amazing. And I learned the power of like sharing and b- being vulnerable and how important that is. Probably to the point now where I overshare things. <laughs> where my mates be like, shut up, I don't need to hear it. I don't need to hear <laughs> about that, it's too much detail. Um, but also there were other people messaging me saying, this is really helping me through my own situation. And it wasn't just spinal cord injuries. It was psychological situations. It was people with who were going through tough times with depression or whatever it might be. And they were saying, your attitude towards your injury is helping me put perspective, give perspective on mine, which rightly or wrongly, and actually wrongly, um, people often don't see their issue as bad as someone else's. And, and especially when it's a psychological issue. And they saw me being paralyzed and they were like, well, actually he's, you know, doing what he can or staying positive for half of the time. Maybe I should, because mine's, but as we know, and I definitely know now with the work I do for the charity, the psychological injuries or issues or traumas can be way worse than physical ones. So, but anyway, it was the first time there was something positive coming out of my accident for other people. And that was like an amazing feeling because I thought I was just completely useless now for life. Like I was just gonna be a burden for life. And all of a sudden this was helping other people. And um, 
I kind of took that and in a weird way, like to rewind from now running a charity and all of those sort of things, I think the, the first seed of that was, it felt great f to me to help others. So it was, a, it was a tool for my own recovery to try and then help more people. To the point now it's gone out of hand and you know, we've got a charity and all those sorts of things. But actually, if I'm honest, I'm not like Mother Teresa. Like if it pained me to help other people, I probably wouldn't do it. It actually felt, it was part of my recovery. It was me finding purpose again. It purpose, just, right? Yeah, it just yeah. had a dual benefit. Yeah. I'd love to, if you're comfortable talking about it, what, what impact the accident had on your relationship with your then fiance, now wife, Lois. It must have been difficult for both of you in very different ways. Um, was it... I mean, I, I'm, I imagine it obviously wasn't smooth sailing, but were there any like really low points where you thought like this, I don't know if this is going to be able to last or was it like, no, this is this is just. Yeah, I mean, most of the concerns were in my mind to start with. Okay. And I think I've straight, there was a conversation about five or six weeks in where I said that she had to leave me, you know, because I was like, you didn't sign up for this. And she's just been a rock through the whole thing. Like, In fact, I couldn't imagine doing it without someone and I, I work with a lot of people, sort of mentoring and just in contact with people who have who have recently got injured. And one of the first things that I will look for is, are, have they got a support a partner? Have they got a, or a really supportive sibling? And then I'll know, you know, actually I can relax a bit in certain areas because it makes such a big difference. And it's actually just as important, like we spoke about before, the pushing away of the close relatives or family members or partners it's making them realize that they are a massive they're going to be a massive part of your recovery so don't do that yeah even though the urges might be there so I, I said she should leave she told me to shut up and then um <laughs> she actually became the nhs is an amazing thing you know it saved my life and at the acute end they're the best in the world like if you they'll save your life like if you want to if you're in a life-threatening situation you're in the right country but resources wise recovery long-term rehab they just aren't the resources there the individuals are there but they just can't so she at lois being sporty like she learned from the physios and she would give me the extra hours of physio in between that really did make a big difference so i think in a way it brought us almost brought us tighter we were so reliant on each other and then we've been through this process of like starting the charity together but there was a tough time when i moved out of hospital it was about i came out of hospital after four months and it was probably six or seven months. I'd moved back in with my parents. We were living there, still in a wheelchair. And um, we'd like start, the, obviously the sexual side of things has, had kind of gone out the window and we were trying to dis rediscover that, what are the options and all of those sorts of things. And, and there always is, op there always are options, but it's going to be different and it's going to be difficult. And I know she was struggling with it as just as much as I was, but she didn't want to upset me. And it got to this point where she was putting on a brave face, but actually, and I was like, you know, it's interesting talking to her about it. And she's written a, she's written a chapter in the book about her side of things, but I was off on this mission then to like, with the charity and to like, well, the charity hadn't spawned them, but to help other people. And with, I was hundred percent focused on my rehab. So I was just in the physio room and she's there just kind of helping out. She's had to leave her job. She's just, and there's there's also the stresses going on. She said that there were times when we were rediscovering that sex part that she felt like she wasn't with me anymore because I smelt different. I was like a different person, obviously physically very different. And it wasn't, she knew it was me and she still loved me, but there was this weird feeling in her head that 
And so she actually went and she came and eventually plucked up the courage to speak to me and then went and spoke, saw her, saw someone about it to work it out. And I was like, look, you've got to just do whatever you want to do. And I'm really sorry that I was just so single track minded and to my own yeah. recovery that, and she was putting on a brave face. So it wasn't obvious that she was struggling, but that was just an example of from the outside, you know, and we were pretty open about that. And actually we speak about it quite a lot now because it's one of those areas that happens to most couples after something like this, but isn't spoken yeah. about very much. But after that, after we worked through it all, now we're better than it, than ever, you know, but it's showing that it's not just, and from the outside looking in, we might've seen like everything's happy and great and whatever, but it's just not the case, you know, and it's not going to be a linear path. And it's just having the ability to be completely open and honest with each other because she was, she was, she let it grow to a point where it really started affecting her because understandably she was like, well, it's not about me. You know, I can't come out and start saying I've got problems. Like Ed's got this spinal cord injury, yeah, you know, yeah. and it's actually, of course it's about her. And yeah. when we're helping other people now, if you, the support network often gets overlooked and actually sometimes you can have bigger wins for the individual by supporting the support network because they'll only be as strong as their support network. But the support network don't feel like they're in a position to go, hang on, I need help because it, they'll think it looks selfish. But actually often after these things happen, it'll be a mother, a husband, a son, a wife going through it worse than the individual psychologically. So it's helping that person can often have a bigger impact than actually helping the individual. Well, you've got something to focus on and they just have to focus on you. I guess as well, like it's a massive change for your parents as well, like because you move, Did what, what did you do at home? Did it, did you, I mean, you moved back in, but did you make like a hospital physio like situation <laughs> at home and just like completely turn your parents' lives like into something new, not necessarily a bad thing, but yeah. like redecorated basically. Yeah, basically. Well, I was quite fortunate that my dad had built the house three years before with my 90 year old granddad in mind. Oh, so there was lucky. like double handrails everywhere. There was rolling showers. Like it was like oh, really almost purpose built. So, lucky. Yeah. so it was kind of, that's why I managed to discharge myself from hospital after four months. A, because I was going home to live with a doctor, but B, because the house was set up for it. I didn't have to wait for those adaptations to be made. But then obviously you're living with your parents, right? So that's got a shelf life from both ways, you yeah. know? And um, it, But it, it was amazing at the time because the main reason I wanted to discharge myself from hospital quickly was the food. Like, there's a right? photo of me in my wheelchair with this big double fridge like in front of me just like ah because hospital food is so bad um, but they set up the ground floor like converted his office into a bedroom and uh, there's a shower room down there but obviously on the first night I was like really wanted to sleep in my own bed so they found me in the middle of the night I'd crawled up the stairs like on <laughs> bum shuffled up the stairs but I was in the little Aww. made it halfway up and got to the because it's like an upside down house there's a living room so downstairs is like office and, and, yeah. and bits. Then there's the living room on the middle, middle floor. Then bedrooms upstairs. I'd made it to the living room. And I was trying to crawl up to the top. <laughs> but then from then on, we just like developed a method of with yeah. a bit of help getting up the stairs. And um, But that transition back into normal life was actually, it was all you wanted to leave hospital. But when you do, it was weird. It was actually quite tough because in hospital, you're in a bit of a bubble and you, it doesn't feel like the real world. Then all of a sudden there's that kettle you used to be able to reach but can't anymore. Right, yeah. you know, That you can't get to your own bedroom. And like actually how impaired you are becomes more obvious. But the thing I was quite fortunate about is when I left hospital, then actually my rehab 
in terms of physio contact and stuff could go up because I had access to all these physios through rugby. In hospital, you're not allowed to bring in outside support. So I was relying on Lois to do the extra bits. So when I left, my recovery, my progress started accelerating. But it was about six months with my parents. And then um, we actually live at the top of the hill now, so not far away. One of our neighbours came around and said, I just converted a couple of cottages up there. Do you want to come and take a look? Because he knew we'd want our own space and they probably would as well. The plan was to move back to London, but um, I think after spending sort of a year down back where I'm from, it was kind of like, actually, it's quite nice down here. Like I, was de- nice I, was, I was desperate to leave Bath when I was like 21. I was in this yeah. place, tiny, everyone knows each other's business, like get me to London. But now when I've moved back, it's actually, yeah. you can appreciate it a bit more. Can I ask about that? I'm, I'm just thinking like when you're... So you get home and and all this progress, which is really slow, but it's continuous. And then obviously there is an end point with the progress. Was that really difficult mentally when you hit that end point and realised like this is now how I'm, this is what I'm going to, how I'm going to be for the rest of my life now? Yeah, I mean, they, so they tell you you've got a two year window. And then after that, you don't make any progress. Okay. But actually that's, I mean, in a way that's true because the majority of your progress will happen in, in at the start and then slow down. But actually, it's not true. It's only because they can provide care for two years. So they don't want you to think that you, if you could recover in three for years, three, four and five and six, whatever. But I speak to people who are 20 years into their injury still seeing changes. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's it's never to not put, not keep trying. Okay. I think it's you've got to have a life as well, right? So the first year I was just hammering rehab. Yeah. And then after that, you're like, I, that's how I got into the mountaineering side of things. I was like, I need goals to aim for, to push towards, to carry on training and rehabbing, but I need to get on with my life. So I can't just live, live my life in a physio room. Um, but even this year, so I've got no temperature or pain sensation in my right leg okay, and or right side. And um, I walked out of the house, um, not even that long ago, a couple of months ago. And I was like, that's weird. My right foot feels cold on the floor because normally if you walk in bare feet on the cold floor my left yeah. foot would feel cold my right foot would just not feel anything and the sense and then I was like pinching myself and the sensations just in overnight it's come back to a, like 70% really so there's still changes happening like even now obviously I know I'm going to be limping around for the rest of my life and, and that's fine but I'm still hopeful that I will carry yeah. on improving to a certain degree there's also so many breakthroughs that are happening in medicine continuously um, I'm an ambassador for a charity called Wings for Life, who are Red Bull's charity. So the guy who founded Red Bull, his godson broke his neck in a motocross accident. Right. And um, because of the power behind Red Bull, they pump like hundreds of millions of pounds into spinal cord injury research to try and find a cure. And some of the projects that they're working on, you know, it's just a matter of when. Is it? You know, it's just a matter of when they, yeah. they have a cure for spinal cord injury. So things like, if I could sort out like, Toilet's the main one. It's just the admin behind it is so annoying. Just making sure that you're not, you know, you're not going to wet yourself effectively. And it happens every now and again. But you have to wear like bags, bags sometimes, and think when you're out and about. And is that because you've got no sensation of the bladder? It's because I do have sense limited sensation. So when I need the toilet, and then I've also got weakened like pelvic floor muscles and everything. Okay. So when I feel I need the toilet, I've got like two or three minutes to get to a toilet. Right. So when I'm at home, it's fine because yeah. um, I'll always be able to get to a toilet or even when I know where I'm going, like I can yeah. go to the toilet and then drive somewhere if I'm going to 
the pub or a mate's house is fine. But when you're out and about spending a day in London or whatever, you need to make sure you've got a bag on just so you're not caught short and have those accidents. And also it's just peace of mind then so you can relax. Um, I'm quite lucky because a lot of people in my situation have to catheterize. They actually have to put a catheter inside themselves whenever they need to go to the toilet. I don't need to do that. Um, but it's still just admin heavy. The yeah. movement side of things is a weird one because you just get, you do get used to it. Yeah. Even people in wheelchairs, after a certain level of time, they'll say they'd rather have their bladder and bowels back than walk their legs because they're used to being in a wheelchair and they're good at it now. So that's the funny thing about the mind, like the, the stages of grief and eventually working to acceptance and yeah. how long that takes. But you can almost, at the start, it feels like the end of the world. It really does. And I think if someone had told me when I was, you know, before my accident, I was gonna, you know, not be able to use my left leg properly, not be able to use my left hand properly, have spasms, not sleep properly, any one of those things, I'd be like, well, that's gonna ruin my life. But actually, none of them really bothered me that much anymore because yes, they increase admin, but it could have been so much worse. But when it first happens to you, you're like, this, it's all over, this is the end of it. But your brain will come around. Like the human, human brain is an amazing thing. Like it will come around, as long as you can stay in the fight and not give up, it will come around to a point where you, you can, there's a certain level of acceptance. And I realize how lucky I am to be able to live a fulfilling life and be independent. And some people don't have those opportunities. So I can only speak for myself. Um, but that's certainly what I've found. Yeah. We're good at adapting humans, aren't mm. we? We are really good at adapting. I don't know if I'm that good. I was thinking, I, was like, I don't think I'm very adaptable, but then maybe I would be. I don't you know. don't know until you're in that yeah. situation, yeah. I think. Like, I would have never said I would have been able to cope with this. But you went from the hospital, I mean, you went from hospital and, you know, when you said you got home, you were bomb shuffling up the stairs to get upstairs. And then within a year, you were, wait, was it within a year? that you, but, I mean, it's still, the accident happened five years ago and you've now climbing mountains like that's huge yeah that like ha i mean how I, how i don't <laughs> i don't know um yeah so six months i was in a wheelchair nine months i managed to get out of the wheelchair and was walking a bit and then one year mark i climbed snowden and it was like i wanted to do something to send a message to other people who were in hospital yeah that just because you've been told one thing doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be the case. I've been told I wasn't going to walk again. but and, and I know sometimes that is the case. But I think if I didn't have that outside influence of my dad and other people who were getting in touch saying, no, keep fighting, I might have given up. And if I hadn't tried, I'd still be in a wheelchair because you need to send the messages from your brain. But I wanted to send a message. I thought I'd just sort of climb a bit up Snowden, but at least if people thought, saw me on my feet, then it would be enough. And because there's a little bit of a shop window with rugby, ex-rugby and those sort of thing, I know that it would make some press and, and then that might send a message to someone in hospital, just one person to, for them to keep trying. But then I turned up on the start line and in the blog, I'd open it up to anyone who wanted to come and join in thinking a couple of people might turn up. Turned up on the start line, there were 70 people there that I didn't no know. So I was like, shit, I'm going to actually have to get to the top now, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> so it took, it peer took, pressure. Yeah, the peer pressure. And it took like nine hours and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done, but it was so unbelievably rewarding. Like everyone yeah. who came to join in were there for their own reasons and a lot of them were going through shit as well. And it was just walking and talking and sharing and overcoming something that I didn't think I was ever going to be able to do and... Then I got completely hooked on it. So just kept, uh, within six months, I was in the Alps climbing something three times higher. Whoa. And now five years later, I've sort of, I'm the highest ever spinal cord injury climbing stuff in Nepal. And 
Wow. So kind of got a bit out of hand. What's next? Are you going to do Everest? <laughs> yeah, Alex wants to do Everest, well, so you can take her up. I've done the height of Everest twice. Once on my parents' what? staircase during lockdown, <laughs> um, which took four days. Um, oh, my God. Uh, that was unbelievably tedious, but we managed to raise 50 grand, so it was definitely worth doing. Wow. And then... Again, recently, um, in, there's a spiral ramp at Twickenham. Me and my mate did another fundraiser to, for a guy called Ed Slater, who's a Gloucester player who's just been diagnosed with motor neurone disease. And we did that in one go. And that was thir- that took 31 hours, like, no, without stopping. Um, and it was 170 miles of horizontal. So it's all stupid. But And it's quite funny. I do some interviews after They're like, so now you've climbed the height of Everest, you're going to go and do the real thing. I'm like, there is no comparison walking up and down your parents' staircase and actually being on Everest. I love that you think there might be, but no, not ready for that yet. Um, Everest is a funny one for me. Like I've got into the more climbing technical side of mountaineering and and I do, it's still the highest mountain in the world and there's that allure to it. And in terms of like sending a message to the spinal cord community, it would be a powerful one. Would I be physically capable of doing it? I'm not sure. Like, probably not now. After a year of training, maybe. Do I want to do it at the moment? I don't know. Like, there's other mountains that are weirdly more appealing because of the technical side of things, but also the state of what's going on on the Everest at the moment um, with the overcrowding and the mess at base camp. And, like, it will get sorted out, I'd like to think, eventually. Morally, I don't want to add to that until it's sorted out. Um but the answer like is I have no idea. That's I'm... why you're ruling out Everest. Right? I know. You've yeah, yeah. Like, Rather than like, actually just, climbing the yeah, thing. Yeah, I don't want to make a mess of the mountain. Not just <laughs> well, like, it's probably it just an excuse, fun. really. But it's, <laughs> yeah. um, it's a good one. It's yeah, nice. yeah. Makes but it sound I, really nice. <laughs> I, all the challenges I do, I go into not knowing if I'm going to be able to complete them or not. Because otherwise I don't yeah. see it as a proper like adventure or challenge. So, And half of them I don't. I've failed on just as many as I've taken on. And I love yeah. that sort yeah. of element of it. What have you failed at? So there's a mountain called Grand Paradiso, which was my first technical mountain that I ever tried, which is a 4,000 meter mountain in Italy. And by technical, it's like, it's got ladders over crevasses and you wear ice axes, you have ice axes and crampons and stuff. Sounds horrible. Um, A lot of fun, but it took me three times to eventually get up that. And then Mont Blanc, I still haven't climbed, but I've never actually, I've been to do it twice. The first time there was it was storm so no one was allowed on the mountain the second time there was a big insurance fuck up because of brexit so i wasn't allowed on the mountain either so there wasn't technically failing on the mountain but and then earlier this year um i don't know if i'd call it a failure i was trying to break the height record for spinal cord injury which we did but we didn't get to the top of the mountain it was a mountain called himlung himal in nepal seven thousand meter mountain and we ended up getting stuck on there for 40 hours and had to spend a night at 6,000 metres in minus 30 without tents, food or water. So we really nearly died. And you can't oh temperature God. regulate properly yeah. anyway. Yeah. Got rescued by a helicopter. It was pretty full um, on. Was Lois with you? Why? No. She has no <laughs> she interest just, like, in that stuff. Hell, come she's home. like, she's like two can nights you just have in a tent. Can you just have a rest? Well, we were, at a, we were in a place that was completely off grid. So there was no connection to the outside world. So for a month or three weeks, she didn't hear from us. Oh luckily. God, I'd kill you. Because it was like, <laughs> yeah, I'm no, glad I she would, didn't hear yeah. it. Yeah. hear from us but it was pretty it was pretty gnarly experience like it was the closest it was we were pretty close to not making it so we had to keep each other awake during the night because we knew that if we fell asleep we'd none of us would wake up so it's pretty full-on experience do you do you like the and I'm, I'm guessing maybe it's because you're a professional sportsman i noticed this in all the friends of mine who i know through help for heroes who've come through with life-changing injuries 
And it's just like they consist they consistently put themselves in more danger. And it's I can't get the yeah. rationale. Yeah. Do you think it's like part th- of your I think maybe a bit of a part of what you're like anyway, but I'm definitely more risk taste I say risk, but like I do more scary things now than I would have even considered doing before my accident. I think one of the main reasons is you realise how short life can be. Mm. Because I survived 10 years of professional rugby, but then it was a Sunday afternoon in a swimming pool that nearly killed me. So you can wrap yourself in cotton wool your whole life, but then you just get hit by a bus tomorrow. You know, you don't know when that day's coming. So you want to live, I know it's a cliche, but you want to live every day. You know, you actually want to go out there and do stuff and try stuff and experience the world. And then once you open that can of worms, you realize how much more's out there and you meet more people that are like that. And it's just like a never ending thing. But at the same time, I think earlier this year, when we nearly died on the mountain, I did, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's an experience I would never choose to repeat. But it's one I don't regret because it was quite formative for me coming back and readjusting things in my life. And I drifted off track a little bit and and in terms of following the things that really give me purpose and I need to put more time into the charity and things like that. But it also made me realise I don't want to die. <laughs> like I've got, yeah. I've, I, I, I like my life. Like yeah. I like being alive. I think I've, got, I've still got lots of things to do and I don't want to, it's not fair on the people that I love and that love me. So there is a way of um, doing crazy challenges that aren't necessarily yeah. going to kill you. Mm-hmm. And the remoteness of the mountain we climbed is what nearly killed us. So the helicopter yeah. couldn't get get to us until the next day. So that's why we had to survive a night. If you just climb a mountain closer to <laughs> Kathmandu, that's not a problem. Yeah. And there's yeah. certain mountains that avalanches are risk and rockfalls are risk. And it doesn't matter how good you are at climbing, they might kill you. Now, like... Do I, could I responsibly or could I justify going and taking on stuff like that? And this situation before I was just hammering away and just going, right, what's next? Don't care how dangerous it is. I was supposed to have a go at the Matterhorn this year, but they had a couple of people die from Rockfall. And I was just like, no, that's not fair. Like if I go, you know, if I go in, into a situation where I know there's a percentage chance of me dying that's out of my hands, that's not fair. So um, it was, it has changed the way I think about things. I mean, God knows you've come close enough now. That's probably why I climb Everest on a staircase. It's much less dangerous than, <laughs> yeah. than the, the real thing. And you can still have the cloud. Quite boring, I imagine. Oh, my God. I would just get so monotonous. over and over again. Because yeah, of... but there's a safety in that. There's a nice... Oh, there's also a fridge at the bottom, so that yeah, was useful. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Oh, about Everest. Yeah. yeah. How has not just your accident, but the work that you do now with the charity that you run, changed the way that you want to live your life now? Probably sort of... I mentioned it earlier, but like the perspective shift, like uh, actually change the way I want to live my life now. And I think that's realizing, realigning myself with following things that I find purpose in and following my gut rather than my head. Like before I was, had this five, 10 year plan or I was terrified of what was around the corner. Like when I was playing rugby, I was like, what what am I going to do after I finish playing? And I was like, in my head, I was like, right, I've done this degree. I'm going to go into the city and do this. And then when I'm 40, I'll be doing that. When I'm 50, I'm doing that. When I'm 60, I'm doing that. And then whatever. And that was in my head. Now it's like, I'll just take every day as it comes. Like follow my gut. Actually release the pressure from myself of like actually achieving for certain things. And actually let the universe take over a little bit in a weird way. And that's quite counterintuitive. And it's definitely not the way I would have approached life before. Because that adds a level of uncertainty and therefore anxiety but once you really trust and rel- like relinquish control into that process but you still stick to your values of working hard being nice to people nurturing relationships 
but follow your heart and follow your gut and do things you're passionate about, everything else seems to fall into place and look after and, and look after itself. And that's been happening. Like I couldn't tell you what exactly I'll be doing next year or the year after. The only constant at the moment is the charity. Um, but I'm excited by that. Yeah. Like before that used to terrify me. So I think it's just living life, relinquishing a little bit more control. That's one of the main differences that's hap- that that's happened. Um, one of the most main realizations I've made, I think. Um, thank you so much. Pleasure. Thank you. Amazing. We'll leave it's all been of so your cool to talk to you. details in the show notes. Is your book out? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It came out eighteen months ago. Oh, God, so it's called Lucky. Lucky. Um, and if you can put up with my voice any longer, it is on Audible. But I narrated it. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> we will leave the link for your book and your socials and, and your charity. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank, thank you so you. much. Thanks, Should I delete that? Is part of the Acast Creator Network. 